All right. So as Pastor Ben mentioned earlier, uh, today we're wrapping up this uh, series on the Apostles' Creed. And uh, the statement that we end up on today is actually three different statements. I promise you we're going to get through this in a decent amount of time. But these three kind of coincide for a reason. And those three are these. You'll see them on the screen up here. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So, one of my favorite movies growing up, and I admit still is today, is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So, now, I'm not, just so we're clear, I'm not talking about the Johnny Depp version. That one's a little weird. And admittedly, the 1971 Gene Wilder version is pretty weird, too. Okay, you can tell what was going on in the world at the time when they they made that movie. But I love Gene Wilder in that movie because, I mean, he just pulls off being one of the most sarcastic human beings in the world. It's just a fun movie to watch. And uh, I don't know if we did damage to our son, but actually, as I was laying in bed this morning, I thought, oh, man, it would have been perfect to do this, but I forgot. And uh, I think Jack, my oldest, was maybe three and a half, maybe four. And again, my parenting is, I mean, yeah, I, oh, thank you. I'm staring off into space. Thanks, Ben. My, uh, my parenting could be questionable, but it was Jack's favorite movie at like three years old, too. So uh, Jack was Willy Wonka for Halloween. Like Shelly made him this like purple coat and he had the little top hat and all kinds of different stuff. And he would walk up and down the streets acting the part, and if you've seen the movie, there's this point where he does this tumble and everything. It took forever to trick-or-treat, because that kid just kept, <laughs> he just had every time somebody say, oh, look, it's Willie, he'd, he'd do it again, and do it again, and do it again. I totally forgot. We have a picture. It's hilarious, but um, all of that to say, uh, if you've not seen it, I'm going to spoil the whole thing for you. Uh, Charlie Bucket is this, this poor little kid from a poor family. And Willy Wonka is the chocolate factory. He's given out golden tickets. Nobody's ever been in the factory, so he's given out these golden tickets. If you buy a Wonka bar and you get a golden ticket, you get to go in for a tour of the factory. You get to meet Willy Wonka, and you get a lifetime supply of chocolate. So this is going to work out pretty good for his family. And so as the story goes on and on and on, by the time you get to the end, it's super exciting. So he gets, Charlie gets a lifetime supply of chocolate, but there's even more. Charlie is awarded the entire factory, and his poor family can move into the factory. All his dreams have come true, and it's a really, really kind of fun story as you follow all these other children and stuff about morals and and all kinds of stuff, even though it's creepy and the visuals are very strange, but it's that's Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. So after Willy Wonka gifts poor Charlie the Chocolate Factory, the entire movie ends on one line. I love the movie. I can't stand this line. It's almost, I almost want to shut it off like I watch it every day or something. I almost want to shut it off before the end of the movie comes. But they're in this flying glass elevator, which is totally realistic and practical. They're in this flying glass elevator, and he's just gifted this to Charlie. Charlie's absolutely amazed. It's just this incredible moment. You can feel the momentum moving. And then Gene Wilder gets down close to Charlie, and he says, Hey, Charlie. Don't forget what happened to the man who got everything he ever wanted. He lived happily ever after. Which is a horrible philosophy for life. 
horrible. It's super cheesy, and of course, then the music ramps up, all this emotion, there's a big hug and everything. If you want to view paradise, it just goes on, and this, this whole, he's flying through the air and all this other kind of stuff. Okay. Now, there's a reason that we kind of like the end of Willy Wonka. It's because we like those tidy endings. We like how everything kind of buttons up. We, we like how, you know, all of a sudden this family's going to be taken care of. We like those happy endings where all things end well and the characters live these full lives after you know you've closed the cover, right? After you've closed the book, you can have a little bit of peace because there's been resolution, right? The good stuff has happened. It's what we want for ourselves, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of why we like that. We want to think that at the end it works out for us pretty good. We get the chocolate factory. I'm all about the chocolate factory, okay? That's what we get. So in the Apostles' Creed, here's what's happened. We've been gifted a home. We've been gifted a home, a storybook ending, and it's a picture of a perfect future with new, resurrected, healthy bodies and everlasting life. It's this incredible, incredible picture. But there's a problem with that. See, if people like you and I say the first part of what we're looking at today, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. If we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins, that implies that there's something else that we believe, that we need to be forgiven of something. It implies that we actually believe in sin. There's something called sin. Now, it has been my experience. There's probably no quicker way to turn people off of a sermon than to begin with the topic of sin. So let's not do it. What do you say? Let's start with the chocolate factory. Let's go right for the chocolate factory, the good stuff, the happy ever after stuff. We'll circle back. We'll, we'll get there. But let's start with the hook, right? Let's start with the good stuff. And to do that, you and I have to come to a pretty... Um, blatant admission. We have to admit that probably when you're looking through the creed and when you're saying you believe in all kinds of different stuff, the resurrection of the body might be the one that's the least believed in all of the creed. That said, it doesn't change the fact that for 2,000 years, over the course of 2,000 years, consistently Christians have anchored themselves in the belief that there is an actual physical resurrection of those who claim faith in Jesus Christ, an actual physical resurrection. So let's just admit right up front, that is, that's an inconceivable belief. It's not very practical. Let's also admit, though, that Christianity makes all kinds of inconceivable inconce claims, like Mary getting pregnant, and it doesn't happen the normal way, okay? Uh, we have all kinds of different things. The, the miracles of Jesus in the Old Testament. You've got the sea parting. You've got somebody, somebody gets turned into a pillar of salt. You've got, I mean, you've got all of these things that take place that we claim we believe. All of these different things. But our resurrection, our, my physical resurrection, your physical resurrection, I have questions. Like, I have all kinds of questions. For instance, what happens if I die in a fire? So if I die in a fire and I'm burned up and I'm, this is really pleasant, I, I know. If I die in a fire and I'm burned up, how does this work on a physical resurrection scale? I mean, does God somehow just need a few, like, does he just need my teeth, right? And from my teeth, he'll extract the cells and recreate some kind of a physical body. I have all kinds of questions, okay? Here's another question. What if I go hiking 
and I get eaten by a bear. It could happen. I could go hiking. <laughs> um, what happens if I go hiking and I get eaten by a bear? My body, my cells, my flesh have nourished that bear. Somehow, I've provided life through my, sacri- my hiking sacrifice. I've provided life for that bear, so when, when I'm resurrected, am I part bear now? Which, hey, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> All right, how does this work? How many viable cells does God need to recreate my body from scratch. Are we talking Night of the Living Dead stuff? Because that doesn't sound good. How does this work? And then I have all kinds of other questions. So if I'm going to die, and I am, but then there's some future resurrection, physical resurrection of my body, then what happens between those two periods of time? I mean, there's some people, the, the guy who died with Jesus on the cross, he said, you'll be with me today in paradise. But clearly... His body's not there yet, so what's the dude doing right now? What are all these people doing right now? Okay, so when the Apostles' Creed was written, there were some Christians who taught that after death, that the physical body just eroded away. That all that mattered, honestly, in the end was your soul. And so some even saw that the body, or anything physical for that matter, uh, was corrupt and evil. And so... Man, it was a great day when you could escape your body, when your spirit would leave your body, and you could just leave this all behind. There's no need for a body because the body was useless. Or, here's another question, does your soul go to heaven, and when the time is right, Jesus returns and zaps your soul back into your body to raise it up? I kind of like that idea. I think about my parents, I think about the people that I've lost. I'd like to think about the idea that they're with Jesus right now right now with Jesus. I kind of like that. Okay? Or maybe, and this is just getting creative, when you die, you go into power nap mode, which sounds pretty good because I'm tired. Okay? Uh, what does this look like? How does this work? The point is, just like I'm not sure how God did what he did with Mary, there's a whole lot of things that we don't know. Is that Okay. Is it okay? In our sensibilities, is it okay to believe some things by faith? So it's asked of us to believe by faith. For 2,000 years, a core belief of a physical resurrection persists, even though we can't say how. And it's a physical one, it is literally a physical resurrection. And I clearly don't have all the answers. But this is what I do know. I know Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, it says God created. God created. It was a physical creation. God spoke, he breathed, he touched, and things, physical, were created. The earth, the heavens, the sea, humanity, all of us. And then when he'd finished Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made, and it was very what? Good. So the physical that God had made, he declared it. He said, everything that I've made is good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God created physical matter. He created you and me, not just to destroy it later. He created it to declare that it was good. He's in the redeeming business. That's what God is doing. And so there's this new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to get to that in a bit, but I want you to listen closely 
This is what I do know. The physical body, your physical body, is not some evil thing that, that you get to escape one day. That's not the goal. Jesus had a physical body. He was given this physical body for the very purpose of redeeming people like you and me. It was a very physical crucifixion. It was a very physical burial. It was a very physical resurrection. These things were real. This is what we say we believe. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So he's in this reconciliation business to reconcile all things to him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Listen, God is not abandoning the physical world. He's rescuing it. He's redeeming it. And that includes the entirety of you and me, body and soul, body and soul. Romans 8, 21 uh, tells us creation itself is going to be liberated. It's going to be freed. We sang about that this morning. Creation is going to be freed from its bondage to decay and corruption and sin. It's going to be brought into the freedom, brought into the glory of God. Verse 23 in Romans chapter 8 says, this freedom involves the redemption of our bodies, physical. Our bodies will be redeemed, not discarded. Our bodies will be raised, immortal, imperishable, freed from the decay that affects the physical world today. That sounds like a good deal to me. Um, even just this, in the last week, I spent time once in person and one um, on the phone with two friends of mine, two mentors of mine, uh, both of them fighting life-altering and potentially life-ending cancer. Two hard conversations, two hard visits. The day, the idea, that, that we would have a body that is incorruptible, without stain, without pain, without hurt, without any of that. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, faith, your faith, my faith, is reduced to like fire insurance, right? I gave my life to Jesus Christ on May 16th, 1992. It does matter how I live my life after that moment, okay? But the bottom line is there's a lot of people that treat it as fire insurance. You know, I, I prayed a prayer, Pastor Rich, so I know I'm not going to go to hell. No, I'm not going to go to hell. But life everlasting is a whole lot more than just not going to hell. There's a whole lot more to real life than just fire insurance. And admittedly, I, I get it, floating around playing harps, like on clouds and stuff, does not hold a ton of attraction, at least not for me. Okay? And the truth is, is we don't know exactly everything that everlasting life is going to look like. We know Jesus has provided a place for us. He tells us that. We know God's there with all of the people of God from all time. That'll take place. Beyond that, the cues that we take, that's from Scripture. It's from Scripture. Uh, in Scripture, uh, eternal life, everlasting life, has been described as a giant feast, a big banquet, a place and time of perpetual celebration, of, of absolute plenty. There's never not enough of anything that you want. 
anything that you need. You will physically be in the presence of God. No, no chasm, no break, nothing. Physically, literally in the presence of God for all eternity. We do know everlasting life is also going to be communal. It'll be communal. In other words, there's going to be this massive gathering of God's people. It's a new heaven. It's a new earth that's populated. There's a population base, and it's communal. And we get this amazing glimpse in the book of Revelation. Revelation 7-9 says this, After I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We had a picture of that from what Pastor Ben read today from the book of Isaiah. There's no soloists. <laughs> uh, there, nobody is alone in this situation. We're all family. It's corporate, multitudes of people together. It's a city. It's a banquet. It's a feast. It's endless perfection, and it's peace. It's peace. It's all communal. All these communal pictures of this new creation, of this everlasting life. Not only that, it's Christians from all time, which is amazing to me. So you got Peter and John and Mary. You got my parents. You got your brother. You got a daughter. One eternal, never-ending Thanksgiving dinner. I like it. I like it. Eternal perfection with God. An eternal perfection with one another, with each other. You know, life here in the church, even, even in real life, uh, is not everything God intended it to be. It's just not. People fight, our loyalties are tested. People hang on to bitterness, anger. Um, Sometimes God even seems distant at times. Have you ever experienced that? You're going through something and you're like, seriously, where are you? Where are you? But then, then, eternal life. In those moments, God will become close. He will be near physically. We will commune physically with God and each other perfectly, completely. What does that look like? <laughs> what does it look like to literally have zero, zero balance between you and another human being? What, what is that even? I, I don't know about you. I can't wrap my brain around exactly what that would feel like or be like other than absolute perfection. Perfection. Fully human, <laughs> which again is crazy. We're fully human, but also fully holy. Loving. Not just saved from something, but actually saved for something. Eternal life is for those who've been made new. And I've shared this passage before. And as long as I'm your pastor, I'll probably share it several times a year because this is, no offense, this is mine. <laughs> My mom, uh, this last week, would have been 11 years since she passed away of cancer, 56 years old. It was not until um, 
she was preparing to pass away. Uh, she gave her life to Christ, but I started really kind of giving any attention to what was written down in the book of Revelation. It wasn't until that point, even as a pastor. But this verse, this passage of Scripture here, is something that my heart aches for. I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I would give up everything today. I would give up everything today to experience what's described in Revelation 21, uh, verses 1 through 5. And the idea that my parents, my mom and my dad, are not just experiencing this, but will experience what it's like to have a perfect, unblemished, cancer-free, unbroken, perfect, not just body, but experience physically with with our Heavenly Father who welcomes us home. The idea that that would take place, it's John the Revelator, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, no, no distance. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, <clears throat> prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the Sorry. He said, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. <clears throat> there will be no more death and mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new, all of it. Then he said, write this down. It's as good as done. These words are trustworthy. These are, I, I love that part. It's my favorite part. It's like, John, how come you're not writing this stuff down? <laughs> Write it down. It's as good as done. Listen, new bodies and eternal life. And in that, we come to the end of the Apostles' Creed. It starts with this uh, loving Father who welcomed us home. And then it ends with us home, with that loving Father, physically, perfectly, for all eternity. Except for one thing. <laughs> so, <clears throat> at the end of Willy Wonka, you knew we were going to go to Willy Wonka, right? At the end of Willy Wonka, uh, for Charlie, receiving the, the chocolate factory was not an automatic thing. That's not originally how it was going to end. Uh, in fact, there was a problem. The story was not headed towards this happily ever after moment. So Charlie and his grandfather, uh, when they were on the tour of the chocolate factory, they stole something, fizzy lifting drink. And uh, while the rest of the people were touring another part, they drank some of it, floated up in the air, and totally practical and real. So um, but that's what they did. They stole, they, they managed to get out of there, all kinds of different stuff, but Willy Wonka knew 
And so Wonka had been prepared to hand everything over to Charlie. Not just the, the lifetime supply of chocolate, but the entire chocolate factory. He was going to hand everything over to him. And when he's confronted with this reality that he's stolen something, um, Charlie does something, and I think this is probably the most profound moment in the entire movie. Uh, Charlie had the opportunity to leave the chocolate factory and was promised all kinds of money for his family and stuff if he gave some of the secrets away and, and stuff like that. But in a moment of humility, Charlie goes up to Mr. Wonka and, and he takes an, he does an action, but it's what's in the action that makes all the difference. He's acknowledging, yeah, I stole fizzy lifting drink. I'm probably not worth receiving what you would give me. And he owns it. He owns what he did. He doesn't defend it. He just owns it. He doesn't deny it. And through this act of humility, we see Charlie acknowledging, I fell short. I fell short. Now, most analogies break down a bit, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is no exception. Okay? But it does reveal a truth. Because in saying that you and I believe in forgiveness, we are admitting that we need it. We're admitting that we need it. Saying I believe in forgiveness means owning my sin, my need for forgiveness. We are all sinners. We all fall short. We're on our own. We all miss the mark. This new creation, the new body, this happily ever after of everlasting life has a problem. It has a problem, and that problem is our brokenness. That problem is our sin. The book of Romans tells us the wages of our sin is death. Our sin earns us death. But there's an even bigger problem, because we like to reduce the idea of sin just to the things that we did do or the things we didn't do, and we like to keep that list of rules and, and laws and all that kind of different stuff. But the bottom line is when you strip it all away, it's who we are. It's in us. The proclivity to sin. The, the, the actual desire to do the acts of sin comes from something. Our nature is corrupt. Sin is more than an act. It's a nature. It's not just what we do, it's who we are. Our guilt, that guilt that you feel sometimes, that's not a feeling. It's a fact. We're guilty. We've all sinned. As Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone to our own way. And it's easy, it's so easy to reduce sinning to the breaking of God's rules and hey, I didn't break any so I must be okay. Sin is so much more than that. Sin is a broken fellowship. It's a broken relationship. It's that broken connection. We have a loving father. We have this loving father who welcomes us home. But at its core, sin is a broken relationship. Forgiveness means reconciliation. Not just wiping out a debt of sin. That's not, that's not all it means. Forgiveness restores our broken relationship with God and one another. And when that happens, when that happens, welcome home. Welcome home. So what do we have? We have a loving Father who welcomes us home. Even though our sin leads to brokenness and alienation from God, even though our sin and our brokenness leads to alienation from one another, He still pursues us. He still welcomes us home. 
The way home is Jesus. He's our suffering servant. He's a shepherd, resurrected, and he lives today. He lived a sinless life. He lived in perfect relationship with God and man and carried the weight of our sin with him on the cross. If the wages of our sin is death, he took that death for us. He carried our sin to the grave, then rose again to give us resurrected life. So in him, we have a just judge. He's perfect, incorruptible, who is coming again. And in the meantime, as you and I wait, he's given us the breath of real life, the Holy Spirit, so that we can actually live out these lives as one holy family, embodying the mission of Jesus in the world today. A taste, us, giving a taste to the world around us and to each other, just a, a taste of that new creation in the book of Revelation. A taste of it. This communion of saints where forgiveness flows, even though sin breaks relationship with God, even though sin breaks relationship with others. What do we have? We have a gathering now of those who are reconciled through forgiveness, living resurrected lives, now and forever. Now and forever. That's what we have. So welcome home. Welcome home. Before we pray, I want to invite you, uh, we're going to throw something on the screen here. Uh, these prayer prompts, but I want to I talk to you really quick about just kind of where we're at and where we're going uh, as a church. Now, obviously, with moving around with staff situations, all kinds of different things, uh, where we're at right now is there are two positions that uh, we're seeking to fill uh, in the life of the staff of the church. A pastor uh, who would handle everything from birth all the way through high school, a next-gen pastor, so to speak, uh, this person would give oversight. They would work with teams of volunteers, all kinds of different things, and there's more we can talk about that a little bit later. But uh, that pastor would come in full-time and, uh, and give oversight and leadership, work with volunteers, work with parents, work with families and guardians, uh, all kinds of different things taking place in, in that ministry area. The second is a pastor of worship and, com and uh, communication, a full-time position of somebody who would be here to help lead us and challenge us and teach us and draw us into what it means to have a culture of worship in the life and the expression of our church. But at the same time, too, help us with communication in our church, help us with uh, all kinds of other pastoral duties that, uh, that are needing to take place right now. Uh, let me really quick just share with you, uh, one of the challenges about uh, finding staff for a church is, is the reality of just operating within the parameters that you've been given. And so, uh, working in conjunction with the church board, uh, I've been working for a number of months now trying to figure out and, and trying to seek God's guidance in regards to how do we move forward as a church. And I, I hate and hesitate to use the word covering all the bases, because whatever ministry you're a part of today is not a base <laughs> that needs to be covered. Uh, every area of the church, every area of ministry in the life of the church needs to be spirit-led. 
and needs to have uh, equal focus. And so what we're trying to do is figure out with the resources that we do have financially, uh, how do we do what needs to happen? And I know historically, three, five, ten years ago, our church was at a different place. In, in a way, it was a little bit of a different church. And I know that there have been times when there's been 10 people on staff and 12 and 13 people on staff. We're not at that place today. We are at a place, though, where we can pray and seek guidance. And so full admission to you, whenever a situation arises, whenever a crisis takes place, whenever, um, whenever a situation arises, uh, my default is not prayer. My default is not prayer. And I recognized that probably early this summer. And so I started working on what it would look like for me to instead of do this, do this. And begin to pray a little bit more. I, I pray. Okay. But, but my default in a situation, particularly a situation that involves my personal responsibility, my default is, all right, here's the paper and pen. All right, Rich, what are you going to do? All right, here, okay, that, that's a good plan. Here's the seven steps. Ooh, seven, that's a holy number, right? All right, here's the seven steps that we're going to come out, and here's how we're going to attack this, and here's where we're going to be able to grab the money to be able to do that and, and put all the pieces together and all that stuff. And honestly, from a very prideful standpoint, I've prided myself over the last 25 years as a pastor to be able to get organized and do all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, sometimes you work God out of the situation. And uh, I'm sure I've been guilty of that over the years. I don't want to be guilty of that anymore. And so early this summer, I started working out what are some prayer prompts that I need to work through in my own life. And so in, in, in September, I shared these prayer prompts with the church board. I've shared them with uh, all kinds of different people. I've shared them with the staff. I've shared them with the worship team when uh, we shared about Hannah resigning. Uh, we've shared it with the youth staff at this point. We've shared it with the children's staff. We've, we've shared it all around, and pretty soon people are going to be like, those are Pastor Rich's prayer points. That's a lot of P's. PPP, right? Payroll protection. No, I don't know. But Pastor Rich's prayer points, okay? But I, I chose these for a reason because I think they're really, really important. And the first one right there is discernment. We obviously want God's guidance. And we want God's wisdom when it comes to making decisions, not just in the church, in our own personal lives. So I want to invite you uh, to join me to join our board, to join our youth staff, to join our children's staff, to join our worship team, to join other leaders, even small groups, who are being challenged in the weekly that you have to implement those prayer points in your life group. I want to challenge you to pray for discernment. Pray for discernment. It's very easy to get clouded by all kinds of different things, and I want to make sure that we hear God's will, and we'll talk about that in a second. The second thing is peace. God is not the author of confusion. That's our enemy. And we have one. God is not the author of confusion, though. God is not the author of chaos. God speaks and sees calm. Okay? That's the God that we serve. And so we have a God of peace, and he wants to give us peace. And you can see all those scriptures there all point to the fact that if we want peace, God's there to give it to us. So we need to seek God's peace in the midst of times that feel like they're unraveling or, or different things like that. We need God's peace to permeate our life, our heart, our church. But then we also need to pray for our words. I know that when situations arise, and I, I know this for myself, one of my default modes is to start talking about it and start assuming that I know certain things that I just don't know. 
And so I want to encourage you to pray for how we speak, not just about this situation or anything else. What are we saying with our words? Scripture tells us that there's a lot of power in our tongue. It can either kill and destroy, but it also has the ability to bring life. How many of you have ever received encouragement from somebody verbally? It makes you feel a little bit better, doesn't it? Our words have the power to bring life. And the life that we want is life in God's will. We clearly need to pray that God's will would be done. Not my will, not your will. We want God's will. That's where we want to live as the church of Jesus Christ today. We want to be in the center of God's will. So I'm going to ask you if you would, as we continue to, to search, as we continue, we want to, we want to honor uh, Zach as he's leaving too. Uh, the next two weeks, there's going to be, like we've done before, uh, um, a card shower out in the foyer. I want to encourage you to take this opportunity to really bless Zach and Kara uh, for everything that they've given in the life of this church and how they've sacrificed for the life of this church. And as we move forward, continue to pray. Would you join me in that? I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's start right now. Father, I pray right now for discernment. I pray that you would give us the kind of wisdom, Father, that, uh, that does only come from above. It's not a wisdom that we can generate or even point to ourselves and say, uh, see what we've come up with. But Father, we want your discernment, your wisdom. Uh, as, as decisions are made, as lives change, as, as, uh, as all kinds of things take place, Father, we need your discernment today. And, and Father, we know that in the middle of your wisdom is a promise of peace. We see that all throughout the book of Proverbs, this, this consistent promise, Father, that you would give us a peace, a peace that does pass all understanding because it doesn't make sense. In the situations we find ourselves in, uh, Father, we have the ability now, if we have your peace in our lives, to model for the rest of the world what it looks like to face a challenge, to face a bad report, to face, Father, uh, a bad health diagnosis. We can do so with the peace that you provide for us. We pray for peace today. We pray, Father, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Father, we want to be people who glorify you in every aspect of our lives. So, Father, I pray that you would humble us so that we can hear and discern your will. And we know, Father, from the book of Romans that uh, we're not conformed to the pattern of this world. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds and it's in that moment, Father, that we will know what your will is, your perfect and pleasing will. So today, Father, thank you for welcoming us home. Thank you for the privilege it is to be able to walk through something like the Apostles' Creed and see ourselves in the story. I pray that you would continue, Father, to work in our hearts and in our minds so that these words become just a solid reality in our lives. We love you, we praise you, we thank you for the privilege it is to be real life community. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today.